Some of my more regular listeners have probably listened to this podcast and wondered to themselves, what in the world is wrong with that guy? Well, stick around because you're about to find out. Hey everybody, my name is Ray Burns and I want to equip Christians to think biblically about every area of life so that they can keep growing in spiritual maturity. And in this episode, we are going to just keep on with our march through talking about psychology and a biblical worldview and whether or not they are compatible. Now, as I talked about in my last episode, this episode is basically just going to be a case study where we are going to look at a person's problems and look at how psychology would diagnose it, but then examine how biblically we can understand it through a, through a, a Christian biblical worldview that looks at the whole person, not just the natural person. And we're going to try to, as, as briefly as I can, because I don't want to belabor this one too much, but as much as we can, I want to implement everything we've discussed. So when we look at it from a psychology perspective, look at it in a purely naturalistic sense, in a secular sense, because that is the, you know, the foundations that psychology is built on and how it interprets things is through a naturalistic worldview. So how can we look at this, this case studies problems and say, okay, how can we explain it through purely natural means? Um, and then, of course, we will take it from the spiritual side and say, having discussed what we have done for the last two episodes, how can we maybe better understand this through a biblical worldview and explain it with a spiritual component to it where we aren't necessarily shoehorning Christ into psychology, but instead starting with the foundation of belief of, you know, we are sinners, we love sin more than we love God, we are spiritual and fleshly beings, you know, all the stuff that we've talked about and taking all of that to understand um, this person's problems. And really what we're going to be boiling down is what it looks like to approach things from behavior modification versus approaching things from the need for a heart change. And now for this case study, we're just going to take a guy, uh, let's call him, I don't know, Ray. Ray Burns, that's a great name. Uh, <laughs> sorry, my wife came up with that joke and I, I couldn't fit it in the intro, but I had to use it. Uh, anyway, so we're going to, honestly, we're going to use me for um, this case study. Uh, reason being that really my whole desire to discuss psychology comes from my own history with it, as I shared before in the first episode and as I've hinted throughout here. And so I want to really just take a, a brief snapshot of my own journey, how I understood myself through psychology, and then as I started finding my identity in Christ, how did I start viewing not just the entire world differently, but the struggles and experiences that I was having, and how did I interpret those through a biblical worldview primarily? Um, now, I'm going to warn you, this episode will be uncomfortable for you. It's going to be uncomfortable for me. I have not looked forward to this episode. I've looked forward to this series, but I knew that I needed to make this episode where I really just didn't just talk about this on a heady level or an overview, but instead really digging down and sharing what this looks like at a practical level, how we can understand ourselves by showing how I've had to come to understand myself. And, you know, I don't like talking about myself. I don't like Onward in the Faith being focused on the guy who makes the content. I just want to be, you know, a tool for for the Lord to to teach, to equip, to encourage, to provide whatever resource I can. But I also realize that God has given me experiences and a history and a broader testimony 
that I can use for his glory. And so that's really what the goal of this is, is not to shine the spotlight on me, but really to shine the spotlight on how I've understood myself through God and how he has brought me along and how hopefully throughout this series, you can better piece through what the world says versus how God is truly seeing us and the things that we or people we know are experiencing. Um, Also, I want to just really share this because it is, in a way, a taboo thing, especially in Christianity. Uh, The secular world in general is, of course, getting a little more accepting of mental health, uh, maybe swinging too far and making it become so much of our identity that we, um, you know, treat it like merit badges or whatever they are in Boy Scouts, where, you know, the more disorders we have, the more mental health problems we have, the more unique and special we are. But within Christianity, especially conservative Christianity, where I would um, align more with, the idea of mental health is not a a well-discussed thing at times. And so uh, I want to, you know, again, kind of breach that barrier, but also just give uh, hope and comfort because I've found hope and comfort in, in this journey that I've taken. And I want to share that while, you know, having problems aren't things that we should chase after or be proud of, We aren't just victims of our problems either. And so I hope that this episode will also show that as I ultimately just try to be fairly open while being as brief as possible about my weaknesses and my failures throughout life. Um, As always, I know you're tired of hearing it. I'm tired of saying it, but I am not offering medical advice here. I am simply in this episode sharing my own experience and where my thinking has evolved. Um, I will also give a warning to my family or those who are very close to me. Um, many of you know bits and pieces of what I'm going to share, but this is going to be fairly open and honest because I want to use whatever I have for God's glory. And I believe that uh, sharing the, the issues that I've had in the past and the experiences is going to be valuable. So... It's okay if you don't listen to this. I know some of you really try to be encouraging and loving and listen to all the stuff that I create. I give you permission on this time. If you don't really want to see all of this, um, you know, you can skip this one. That is totally fine. But that being said, let us just, uh, I guess, finally jump into it and look at how I was diagnosed through a secular psychological lens and then how I've come to understand myself, biblically speaking. Uh, So as I'm going to go through this, I'm going to talk about the four disorders that I was assigned through my various experiences with psychology. And um, I was going to use the DSM-5 definitions because I think there'd be, it's valuable to show this and explain this in their own words so that it's not just me kind of summing it up, but you can kind of hear how people are reading this or explaining it. But the DSM-5, you know, that big kind of rules, or not rules, but the big reference manual for mental health disorders, uh, it's, a, it's a little stilted, it's a little dry and technical. So instead what I've done is I have gotten the uh, definitions from the Mayo Clinic. Uh, they're a little bit of an easier read and in comparing them to the more official uh, language, I would say they match up fairly well. But of course, if you're really curious, you can of course dig up how to find the stuff on the DSM-5 and see it for yourself. But uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to share the disorder I was given. I'm going to read the definition for the first two of these. Um, The second two, I'm going to go point by point. Uh, But so I'll do that and then just kind of explain what I personally experienced that led to me being diagnosed with this and why 
from a psych psychology perspective, what I experienced really lines up with these diagnoses and why a lot of people find comfort in psychology because it does say, wow, this label really fits me. This is who and what I am. I am this, this thing. So uh, the first one is dysthymia. Um, it's also known as persistent depressive disorder. Um, and this is a continuous, long-term, or chronic form of depression. You may lose interest in normal daily activities, feel hopeless, lack productivity, and have low self-esteem and an overall feeling of inadequacy. These feelings last for years and may significantly interfere with your relationships, school, work, and daily activities. So this is from that first episode uh, that I talked about how I always felt this very low grade of, of depression or feeling down. Uh, this wasn't the kind of depression that most people think of where you just can't move, you, you starve yourself, you don't leave the house, things like that. This was more a constant, persistent, nonstop feeling of everything just being low or dim. Um, I, I struggled with motivation for things because I constantly had this feeling of why bother. Um, and just generally speaking, I was not miserable, but I was never truly happy or satisfied in life. I would say that um, I wasn't even, I never even felt normal. Um, you know, if, if you picture uh, a sea level or water level, you know, when you're in depression, you're at the very bottom of the ocean. When you're, you know, getting married, having your birthday, whatever, you know, you're, you know, soaring way above sea level, but most people, your general day to day, when you're sitting in the office, when you're eating breakfast, you're at sea level, right? You're just right there. Uh, but for me, I would say that I was constantly just maybe a few inches, maybe a foot below that surface. I, there was always this kind of overwhelming feeling, this, this, uh, dimming of the edges of my vision, if you will, not literally, but just this feeling of just this constant, um, oppressive sadness or hopelessness that I felt. And so it wasn't a constant, um, deep depth of the ocean feeling, but I could never really just come up and kind of catch my breath or feel like I was on an even level. Um, next thing that I was diagnosed with was severe depression, which is also known as having a major depressive disorder. Uh, so depression is a mood disorder that causes a persistent feeling of sadness and loss of interest. Also called major depressive disorder or clinical depression, it affects how you feel, think, and behave and can lead to a variety of emotional and physical problems. You may have trouble doing normal day-to-day -day activities and sometimes you may feel as if life isn't worth living. And that last one was really the big part for me with uh, my depression. You know, like I said, I always had that lower grade thing, but then there'd be times where I would really just bottom out, um, you know, suicidal thoughts, suicidal attempts, very uh, weak ones, um, but just this constant desire of, I don't want to live anymore. What is the point? What, why, why should I even try anymore? There's nothing good waiting for me. There's no way life's going to get better. Um, and so just overall, I would hit these moments where I would bottom out, not want to eat, not want to go out or do anything. Um, I would uh, miss days of work and just things like that. And I would, I would just have these really low, hard moments where everything seemed hopeless, where I, it, it just seemed much safer and smarter to just, just lay back and just give up completely, whether through suicide, whether just through, you know, why keep trying in school, why keep trying in work or relationships, whatever it was, I would just hit these really, really low moments. Uh, next is borderline personality disorder. Now, this is one where I'm not going to read the uh, 
actual thing and then explain it because uh, the resource I found on Mayo Clinic, it's more of a point by point thing. So these next two are personality disorders that are part of what they call clusters. So borderline personality disorder is a cluster B personality disorder. And from their definition, they're characterized by dramatic and overly emotional or unpredictable thinking or behavior. So if you didn't catch that, yes, I was characterized by overly emotional thinking, <laughs> which if you've been around here long enough, maybe that's funny to you, but it is to me. Um, but so what they do then is they kind of give some bullet points of ways that you can see this play out in someone with a borderline personality disorder. So I will read the point and then I will explain what I was telling psychologists in order for them to say, oh, this guy clearly matches this diagnosis. So uh, the first one is you will have impulsive and risky behavior, such as having unsafe sex, gambling, or binge eating. Now for me, um, I was having sex. I wouldn't say it was unsafe to the degree that most people would where you're, you know, going out and just, you know, sleeping with whoever, but uh, having grown up and been in a very conservative environment for me to have sex um, freely was a bit uh, of a problem there in terms of my own standards or lines. Um, I would uh, be very dangerous, especially when driving. If you remember the Fast and the Furious movies where you're weaving in and out of traffic and going as fast as you can, that is how I just drove. Um, not because I thought I was cool or anything like that, but I mostly just wanted the freedom to say I could, and I wanted to feel something in a way, which uh, we'll kind of get into later. Um, I would also binge things. I would, I would uh, just have way too much of something that would be food, candy. I would also be purchasing and, and spending money. I would just have no concern for price whatsoever. If I had the money, I was going to spend the money. And if I didn't have the money, I also had a credit card. Uh, and then I would make a very kind of snap decisions where I wanted to do something. And so I would do it. it didn't matter what it was, but if I wanted to go out, if I wanted to get into a fight, if I wanted to do, you know, whatever, um, I would just, I would do it because it felt right in the moment. And there was nothing that I felt I could do in the moment. If I felt calling to, to do something, to say something, then I would do that. Um, another symptom is an unstable or fragile self-image. Uh, so for me, I always felt like I was never good enough. I always saw my failures, uh, even my successes. I had this feeling of, well, it's just, it's not good enough. It was a fluke. People are making a bigger deal out of it than it is and things like that. And so I was constantly just very anxious about and anything I did in life, um, how people saw me, I felt like they were always one question away from really seeing who I truly was and things like that. Uh, next is untable, unstable and intense relationships. Um, so within my um, middle and high school years, I had a, a lot of drama in my relationships where they would just be constantly fighting, looking for ways to, to pick at each other. Um, a lot of jealousy on my part, um, a lot of uh, controlling behaviors and intense behaviors, um, very, very high emotion, you know, just big romance, big fighting, big anger, very hurtful words. Um, today, we would call them toxic relationships, uh, and that is basically what I brought to my relationships was toxicity. 
another one is up and down moods, often as a reaction to interpersonal stress. So this is where I would see things like depression, anxiety. I would be very quick to anger. I would get into a lot of fights, especially in middle school, uh, mostly because in high school I was homeschooled, so it was a little harder to get into fights there. Uh, but uh, yeah, a, a lot of my relationships and things like that were, were um, you know, my mood was dictated by how things were going with other people. If there was any issues, I was very quick to a very extreme and intense emotion. Um, and then suicidal behavior or threats of self-injury. Uh, so this uh, took place in two different ways in my own life. Uh, suicide was a thing where, uh, you know, I didn't ex exactly want to die. It, it's, it's hard to explain suicide to anyone that hasn't really been there. But, um, you know, suicide is one of those things where it's like, I wanted to die, but I didn't want to die. I just didn't know what else I could do. Everything else had failed me. And so I would make these really weak attempts at suicide. You know, nothing, praise God, that uh, ever sent me to the hospital or as far as I know, did any irreparable damage. Um, but, you know, I do things like I would, uh, I would also make plans for, you know, these bigger, these bigger, more successful ways that I could, uh, commit suicide. I would, I had several times written those final letters to, uh, family and friends and things like that. And, uh, really with suicide for my experience, it was one of those things where I just, everything else had failed me. There was no true happiness to be found in life. And so the best thing I could hope for was to not experience what I was feeling anymore. And that was ultimately what was driving me to uh, suicidal behavior. And then uh, as far as self-injury goes, uh, I would um, basically burn myself with, with hot water. So, uh, and this was done basically as I'll talk in a moment, but I would have these feelings of emptiness or detachment from my life. Um, and so I would just, I would turn the water on really hot, either in the shower, when doing dishes, when washing my hands. And I would just kind of sit there and just feel that intense pain so that I could feel something. Um, and that was almost a comfort to me because I could, I could choose to finally feel something in my life. Uh, another symptom is an intense fear of being alone or abandoned. So I saw this a lot in my own relationships. Um, I always, in a way, secretly was waiting for a family member, a friend, uh, a girl I was in a relationship with to just finally leave me, just be done. They, were, they would just walk away. Um, and so often what I would do, especially in my romantic relationships, is I would manipulate in order to prevent it. I would try to keep things locked down and in control so that I could... Um, basically ensure that if I did not want the relationship to end, that it couldn't. Now, if you've ever been a part of a relationship like that, or if you've ever um, had a friend or anyone like that, you know that it actually pushes them away more and rightfully so. But that was the mentality I had is I don't want to be alone. I don't want to be abandoned. And I, I know I deserve it. I know they shouldn't be with me. I, they, they can't truly care about me. Everyone is, is just waiting to leave me, but I don't want that. So I'm going to do whatever I can to keep things locked down. Um, and that would, of course, lead to uh, also feelings of jealousy, because, again, if someone's going to leave me, they're going to leave me for something better. They're going to abandon me for something else. Uh, you know, in, in a romantic relationships, friendships, family, all of this, I was frequently jealous of any attention being diverted elsewhere just because that is the thing that's going to to pull them away from me. Uh, and then, um, like I said, I had ongoing feelings of emptiness. Uh, and this one is, is hard to really explain, but the best way I can is that I felt like I was almost a passenger in my own life. 
I would be going along, I would be doing things and living and thinking, but I felt like I was not fully connected to my body or to my life. I was just kind of along for the ride and making arbitrary decisions almost, but not really an active participant in things. Um, again, that is what led me to burning myself with water just because that would, in a way, ground me back into reality, I thought. Um, and then another is frequent intense displays of anger. I would have very much an instant anger trigger. Um, this would lead to me, I've punched holes in things around my house. I would throw stuff, I would break things, uh, I would yell and scream, things like that. Uh, but overall, um, it, was, it wasn't just, you know, kind of grumpy. It was in a second for reasons that didn't make sense. I would just explode in anger. Um, and then according to the website, they say stress-related paranoia that comes and goes. Now, this one, I will say, I don't fully know what I would have had that matched it. Of course, you don't have to match everything. Uh, the only thing I can think is that, again, out within my own relationships, I was very paranoid of people thinking certain things about me, secretly hating me, secretly wanting to abandon me, and things like that. That may be what fits this, or this may just be a symptom that I didn't fully um, uh, manifest. But that was borderline personality disorder. Now... Uh, fourth one is avoidant personality disorder, and this is a cluster C personality disorder, which are characterized by anxious, fearful thinking or behavior. So symptoms of this are being too sensitive to criticism or rejection. So for me, if someone said one negative thing about me, if uh, someone turned me down for hanging out for, you know, being boyfriend, girlfriend, you know how middle school stuff is. Uh, somebody criticized a thing that I did, didn't like an idea I had, argued with me about something that I thought was right and they thought was wrong, whatever it was, uh, that could rock me, honestly, for weeks. I would just sit there and I would just spiral out of control and constantly think of all the ways that I was stupid and wrong and foolish and why would I bother? And I would just constantly react way over the top to things that were honestly even slight. I mean, I'm not talking about like a manager at work coming down on me for a big screw up. I'm talking about someone just criticizing something even lovingly and gently, but I would take it as far to the extreme as I possibly could and let it just completely demolish my whole day or my whole week. Uh, another is feeling inadequate, inferior, or unattractive. Uh, again, I doubted anything good that people said about me. Um, I never felt good enough for anything I did. Even successes that I got, I felt like they were not earned and I didn't deserve them. Um, I just, I constantly saw myself as the worst possible version of myself I could be, and really in spite of what anyone else said or what was logically true. Uh, another is avoidance of work activities that require interpersonal contact. Uh, so basically, I would do whatever it took not to have to socialize with people. Um, I got very good at putting on a face and kind of getting through it because in the circles I ran in, I couldn't avoid it. But if I had a choice, I would do whatever it took not to do anything. So I would call in sick if I was just feeling overwhelmed or just in such terror of interacting with people. Um, the stress of certain situations and, and, and social interactions would sometimes be so overwhelming to me that I would actually get physically sick and vomit um, and oh no, I'm sick, I can't go. But uh, it would all be because really just I would be so stressed and, and anxious about social interaction, especially in new situations, that it would, it would uh, dominate my entire life and my fear would dictate everything else that I did. 
Another is being socially inhibited, timid and isolated, avoiding new activities, or meeting strangers. Again, this wasn't just shyness. This wasn't just me being an introvert. It was me really genuinely struggling with uh, social situations, especially as I got older. Um, another, extreme shyness, shyness in social situations and personal relationships. Uh, again, this is just kind of a, a cluster of everything I've talked about so far for how I've experienced that. Um, and then another is fear of disapproval, embarrassment, or ridicule. And so I ultimately would be controlled by my fear of failure. If there was a chance of me doing something and it not going well, of people having something negative to say about it or think about it, or if I did something and even if it went well, I would know, I would be confident, I would be certain that people were secretly judging it and hating it and they were just being nice. And so I was basically controlled by a constant fear of failure where I would not do things or whatever I would do would be completely just tarnished by all these scenarios that I was creating in my head. So uh, that is what's wrong with me, according to psychology. Now, broad sense, my biggest problems were, of course, one of two things, or probably both. One is biology. Uh, in other words, my, my physical body was failing me. So this would especially be with uh, my two issues of depression, the low grade depression, and then that severe depression, uh, you know, they would say, Oh, your brain's not producing enough chemicals and things like that. And so, uh, you know, the fix for that was, well, if, if, if there's something naturally wrong with you, then let's fix it with natural means. And so we, you know, would try, um, or I tried, uh, antidepressants to see if that would fix things. And it did not <laughs> at all. But, uh, you know, for a lot of people, though, you know, if you're anxious, well, let's just give you a medication that turns off that anxiety. If you are depressed, if you lack energy, if you are too over the top, uh, you know, let's just let's just find some medicine that will bring you down or up to where you need to be, because we don't want to feel those things, essentially. Um, and so with that, my only hope was to live in spite of the disorders or take medicine to balance chemical problems that hadn't been tested. They had just been assigned to me. Um, another is that I had problems with learned behavior. So things like abandonment and things like that, uh, we could look back throughout my history and say, well, here, here, because of what you've experienced, here's what you've started manifesting and here's how you relate to your life. And so ultimately, and I don't say this disparagingly, but this is really what psychology comes at, the approach that psychology comes at it, is that I was like a dog who barks at thunder. If you want the dog to stop, you just teach it better behavior. And once the dog, stop, once the dog stops barking at thunderstorms, then the problem is fixed. Because everything that we feel, everything we experience is a learned behavior. So we just need to correct our behavior, correct our thinking, and then we're fixed. Because again, this is all natural. So either we can, we physically fix the problem or we find techniques to fix, to train our brains in a, in a way and train our behavior to fix the problem in the same way of training an animal. Because there's no real difference between us and animals in terms of why we do what we do. It's all purely natural. And so, you know, I want to say that, you know, this whole series is obviously not favorable towards psychology, but I don't want it to come across as though I hate psychology. I think it's evil or anything like that, because as I said, psychologists are the ones who are doing these things and they are doing it because they are trying to help people. 
you know, so I don't think they're evil. But even psychology itself can be a useful tool because for me, when I was talking to these professionals and these experts, they helped me to find links to the behavior I was doing and what I was thinking. Uh, they helped me to identify patterns, and they even just gave me an objective look at my behavior so that I could see from an outsider's objective perspective, you know, why these toxic relationships weren't healthy, why my fear of abandonment wasn't normal, why me feeling this constant depression isn't a thing that everyone else experiences. And so in a way, psychology is useful in that it can observe data. It can point out patterns and, and behaviors and things like that. But ultimately, again, it's not that the data that is the problem, it's how it's interpreted. And so through psychology, looking at all the things that I was doing and thinking, they saw my symptoms as my only problem. You're depressed. Well, let's make you stop feeling depressed. You are getting angry. Let's teach you better behaviors instead of anger. And so my greatest problem in the sphere of psychology was what I was doing, what I was thinking. Fix that, fix the problem. But then I started having a turn. And as God started really working my life and drawing me back to Christ, because I'd been saved at this point for about 10 years, uh, when I started really seeing this stuff, I started getting into discipleship um, with a very godly man who basically just walked me through things like this. And as I started growing closer to Christ, I started finding my identity in Christ. I was not setting my mind on things of the world. I was setting my mind on things above. I was not having my mind conformed to the world. It was being transformed by the Holy Spirit. And so not only was I growing in spiritual maturity and in wisdom and in understanding and in just a greater love for holy things and a greater hatred for sin, but within this, this growing identity in my savior, I was also starting to see past these safety nets that I had always clung to that allowed me to be a victim because I couldn't help that I had this low grade depression. It just was what it was. Either I could take medicine or deal with it. Same thing with my uh, severe depression. Either I could take medicine or deal with it. My uh, personality disorders, well, I just had to do better. I had to act better or find a way to cope with living with it or hope that people just understood that, well, this is just the way that I am and I can't help it. And that was comforting. That was a part of my identity because I had labels and I could, I could see myself in a way to explain all these experiences I had. And even find comfort in knowing that no matter how bad I felt about the pain that I was bringing to the lives of my friends, uh, my wife and my kids at the time, you know, even despite that, like it wasn't my fault though. And, and that's comforting. It's nice not to be the villain in our story. But the more that I started growing, the more I started learning and examining myself and examining my heart, I saw a very sinful heart. It wasn't a heart that was basically good, but went you know, wrong every once in a while, but it was a heart that deeply loved sin without the intervention of God in my life. And so I started viewing my problems through a biblical worldview, a full biblical worldview, not just, you know, slapping verses on my problems or taking, you know, Bible verses and take, making them like these, you know, mottos to, you know, really empower me and make me feel better, but really and truly trying to understand myself and see myself in the way that God is seeing me and my problems and my desires. And when I did that, I started looking at not what I was doing, but why I was doing it. And 
This is really, we talked about this last week, but in Luke 6.45, Christ says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so I started seeing a deeper sickness that was going on. I was having all these bad behaviors. I was angry. I was hopeless. And I didn't know why. And so I started realizing that this is all coming from somewhere. It's that conversation of these are fruits, but what is the root that is growing them? What is is producing these behaviors and these thoughts in me? And so what I'd like to do now is to kind of transition it over and look not at what I did, but kind of the why of it. And looking at that deeper sickness, that deeper root, and that, that thing that was going on inside me that was creating these patterns and behaviors in my life. And we're going to look at three different things. We're going to look at my fear and worship of people, my absolute need for control, and my hopelessness. And you'll notice that I'm, I'm not assigning labels. I'm not assigning diagnoses and things like that. I'm not just slapping something different on the same horse. Instead, I'm, I'm going to be uh, taking my, my issues or my symptoms, and I'm going to be lumping them differently than how these psychological diagnoses would. And the reason is that I can look back and see why I was doing certain things that at the time seemed very unrelated. But as we're going to see, um, you know, I was, I was messed up and for a very obvious reason. So, so let's just look at this. So my social problems, this is the easier one. So what was wrong with me socially? Why was I having anxiety? Why was I being angry with people and things like that? Uh, you know, why was I living in fear of situations? Why did I conjure up all these circumstances and the, and assume that people thought the worst and, and conjure all these doom and gloom scenarios in my head? Well, what I was really going through is that I was viewing myself poorly because I thought others did. I feared abandonment and betrayal, and any form of criticism would just ruin me. It would even lead me to depression and even suicidal thoughts. And I'm not talking again about, you know, this big, you know, some, you know, someone really important coming down on me, but just anything, any bit of criticism or critique or failure on my part would just shatter any image, any, any good thing I believed about myself. And I would just bottom out and just keep assuming the worst about myself and just feel like an absolute failure and just ask myself, you know, why bother and things like that. Now, what was really going on is that I feared and worshiped other people. So let's look at what I was really doing when I experienced these things. I would allow others to decide my worth and to define my image of myself. If people spoke well of me, that would very slowly build me up. It was a slow go thing because for every, you know, five critiques or five praises, it would even out by one critique. So I needed a lot of good to override a little bad in my life. But if someone criticized something I did, then because they saw me as substandard, as not meeting expectations, I would then view myself as a failure. I would allow their view of me and their words to me, or even my perceived thoughts of what they thought of me. So even if they didn't say anything, even if they weren't really thinking it, because I thought they were thinking it, my own self-image, my own idea of myself would be shattered and destroyed. Why? 
because I was letting other people decide who I was for me. Um, I would also try to appease, manipulate, or control others to feel better. So I needed people to see me in a certain way. I needed people to have a certain kind of relationship with me. And if they didn't, then I would do whatever I could do. I would manipulate, lie, I would say all the right things, I would even do the right things, all in an attempt to keep them where I wanted them, to keep things how I wanted it, so that I would not have to feel bad or to have other people think negatively of me. And then if I couldn't control those people, then I would withdraw from them out of fear. So I would fear people's opinions or what I thought their opinions might be. And so I would not go to social situations because I just couldn't handle the stress and, and overwhelming anxiety related to someone thinking badly of me. Or I would uh, think myself into such a situation that I would be physically ill because I, I was so overwhelmed with the reality of what I thought people thought about me. I thought everyone hated me or that everyone thought I was worthless and things like that. And so it would, it would just completely dominate everything about me. And so I would just remove myself from other people so that I didn't have to experience that overwhelming dread and feeling of failure. And then not only did I just fear people, but I also worshiped them in a way because I gave them power. They decided who I was. They dictated my happiness. They dictated my value. They told me who I was. If, if they spoke poorly of me, if they criticized me, then clearly I was a failure and that's all I was. If people built me up and built me up and built me up, then maybe, maybe I would listen and say, you know, maybe I am good at this thing. Maybe I do have value. But it was others who decided that for me. It was other human beings who were so important in my life that they were the ones to have that power. And then, as with anything that we worship, I was willing to sacrifice anything to serve the opinions of others. And I would have a lot of toxic and destructive relationship traits going on because I was so in need of controlling things and in having things go a certain way so that I could view myself well because others would. And I would, of course, be destroyed when I failed in those relationships. So that is how I view my social problems, is it was a fear and a worship of other human beings. I let them be the primary deciders in who I was and when I could be happy and when I should hate myself. They are the ones who dictated how I viewed everything I did and everything I wanted to do in my life. So that was problem number one, was basically, in a way, idolatry and a fear of man. Uh, the next one to talk about, and, and this is a group of things I experienced, is my self-harm, control, manipulation, anger, impulsivity, and some aspects of my depression. Now, that might seem like kind of a weird group. How does manipulating people and being impulsive deal with things like depression and self-harm? And it's a, same, it's, it's a weird grouping, but as I've been able to reflect and examine myself over these last years, uh, I've been able to find the same root to all of them. And it all ultimately boils down to control. And it takes place in two ways because there, there's two problems I had with control that are linked in a weird way. First is that I needed to have absolute control over every situation in my life. It had to go exactly how I said. But I also needed to have control 
and be able to say when I was going to release my control. So things like anger and impulsivity, you know, those are things where you are out of control. But I was the one choosing to do those things. I was the one who was saying, I'm going to be angry now. I'm going to spend money now, or I'm going to, you know, eat as much as I want because I can. And so uh, I'd, I'd like to just uh, briefly look at each of these that I experienced, and we're going to see just how all of these things boil down to a need for control. So first was self-harm. This one, if you remember, pretty easy. I wanted to control how I felt. I felt hollow, so I was going to choose to feel something. I felt nothing, so I was going to choose to feel pain. And I was going to choose how long I felt that pain. I was going to choose how intensely I felt that pain. But I was the one in control. So for everything that felt out of control, where I felt helpless to my feelings, at least this I could be in control of. Um, my uh, controlling and manipulation of people. Uh, this would be that I would be in control of their approval. So if I could manipulate them, if I could make them do certain things or prevent them from doing other things, then I could be in control of what they were doing and what they were thinking and how our relationship was going to go. Uh, my anger, on one hand, felt good because I could be you know, in control of a situation because when, when you're angry, you are controlling what's happening. You know, you are choosing to break this thing. You are choosing to hurt these people and things like that. But anger would also manifest most of the time when I lacked control in my life. And this is one that, you know, listeners, I really, really want you to listen to because I think everyone listening can relate to this. So think about the last time you got angry or something that you frequently get angry about. Maybe you're in traffic and that idiot cut you off. Well, what are you really angry about? You were angry that you've lost control because you don't deserve for them to do it. You deserve to go in the direction that you want to go. And for this Yahoo to just merge into your lane, how dare they? That is not what you gave them permission to do. And so you are angry because they have taken control away from you and how you are handling your time in traffic your kids. They're disobedient. They're yelling. They're not doing their homework. They're not doing well in school or sports. Well, you're out of control because they are not doing what you think is right. They are not performing in the way that you have established that they should. And because they are not doing what you demand and dictate that be done, you are angry at the situation or at your kids. Uh, let's get silly. And, you know, people who legit get mad at sports you know, their sports team is failing or making bad calls or da da da. Well, what's going on? You have decided your team needs to win or that a particular player needs to make this play or a coach needs to, to set up this play or whatever. And when they don't do what you think should be done, you are mad because how dare they not serve the thing that you have said needs to happen. You would be happy if only they would win or perform well or do this and because they didn't you are angry because you have not gotten that thing that you said you need to have or even a friend you know maybe not saying happy birthday to you or wishing you uh, you know a happy anniversary or giving you a certain gift or offering to pick you up when you hinted at them that they should or not giving you money when you hinted that they should you know why do we get angry at our friends when they don't do the things that we think because if we could control them, if we could push a button and have them do that, then they would do it. But because they don't do it, because 
because we are not in control of the situation and having things go precisely how we want, we are angry. And so the reason that I would get angry is the exact same reason that you get angry. And that is we have desires that are not being met. And because we don't have control in that situation or absolute control in that situation, we get angry. Just like a baby who wants a toy that mom takes away. Or when dad says no, when baby's trying to stick their finger in the light socket, they are angry because they wanted to do the thing, but someone has taken away their control. And so they throw a fit and our anger is exactly the same way. We are toddlers throwing a fit because we don't get what we want. Again, all comes down to a need for control. Now my impulsivity, again, this was a releasing of control and spending money and eating food to, to beyond excess, just eating way too much. And how is that being in control? That's releasing control, right? Yes, but also no, because when I say, hmm, I want to buy this thing. No, I shouldn't. I'm being controlled by something else. I want that thing. How dare anyone, including me, tell me no. So you better believe I'm going to buy that thing. I'm going to eat that food. I'm going to keep eating that food. Again, it was all because I could not stand not being in control of something. And then, like I said, some of my depression came down to control. And this was because I had a huge fear of the unknown in situations or in my life. You know, if, if uh, a bill would come up, a car would break down, there was sickness, uh, whatever, whatever was happening, even just thinking about the future in general, and I would experience depression. Why? Because I did not have control over what was happening or I did not know what would happen. I was helpless. I was just kind of along for the ride on how my life in the world was going. And so I would just feel completely helpless and completely hopeless because if I wasn't in control, if I didn't have a Loctite grip on how events were playing out, then there was no way they could play out perfectly because I knew I was the one that had to decide. And if I wasn't in control, nothing could go right. And so because I did not have control, I did not have hope because I could not do anything about it. And because I did not have hope, I would be hopeless and therefore I would go into depression. And so if you listen to this from a, from a biblical worldview, my need for control was ultimately that I did not live as though a sovereign God was my heavenly father. I did not live as though my life belonged to Jesus Christ. Instead, my life was mine. I lived for what I wanted. I did what I wanted. My problems were my own, so I had to be in control of those. And if I could not control the narrative in my relationships, if I could not know exactly how things were going to play out, whatever it was, I would get angry or hopeless. But within that, my purpose was also my own. And so I was just living and doing whatever I thought was right and good. And so my satisfaction, whatever made me happiest in life was found in my own power. And so if I could be in control of a situation, I would be happy. I would find satisfaction and life was good. But if control and power was removed from me or even threatened, then everything would just go off the rails. And then finally, my depression, emptiness, and suicide. Now, this is one that probably deserves its own episode, honestly, uh, because I know that depression and a feeling of hopelessness is so 
pervasive in our culture. So many people experience it, and a lot of people feel like they, they can't escape it. Uh, but as I reflected on myself, what I saw is that I spent, basically from the age of 10, living in hopelessness. So as I shared in episode one, my feelings of that low-grade depression and then those deep bottom outs of depression, that started for me when I was about 10 years old. There's a lot of transitions in my life. I had just started in middle school. Um, you know, I was in a new place. Uh, my friend group was not great. Um, you know, there were some bullies and just stuff like that. And so I felt very aimless in my life. I had no idea what to do with my life. I was just kind of coasting along. I was doing my class stuff in school. I was going home and doing my home stuff, but I didn't know what to do with my life. I was just kind of there and everything felt overwhelming. Uh, happiness seemed very unobtainable for me. So I would try things to make me happy. I would go into relationships and friendships and I would try to do well in school and have fun with video games and enjoy food. And, you know, I would just, I would keep seeking happiness in places and some things would bring some happiness, but ultimately nothing was ever satisfying. Nothing would ever make me be able to just rest in it. And so I would put my hope and my trust in this thing to, to make me feel better and it would fail me. And that would just send me swinging the other way because once again, there's no hope. There's nothing out there that can satisfy me. Um, likewise, with my uh, social problems, my, you know, the validation of other people's and finding my identity seemed almost impossible. And even when I was successful and things went well and people thought well of me, it still felt pointless because again, it was not satisfying me in the way that I wanted. So even these things that I knew I wanted and I finally got them, I got the approval of people, I succeeded in something, whatever, it was still not enough. Uh, likewise, my control over the world wouldn't last. And a lot of times my control would just lead to more suffering. You know, I would uh, give in to my impulsiveness. I would give in to controlling people. I would try to, you know, control situations and, and events in my life and things would just go worse. And again, why even try? No matter what I try to do, no matter how hard I work, it all falls apart or I enjoy it for a moment and then I'm left wanting again. And it was just this constant hamster wheel of always moving, always doing stuff, but never getting anywhere. Um, likewise, I just couldn't picture a future where things were any better. You know, year after year, I kept trying and trying. And year after year, I was disappointed. I was left wanting. I was more out of control with my life. So why bother? And so that's where these feelings of emptiness then would start to set in because I was constantly living a life where something was lacking. Something was not right. And so more and more, I felt like the life, the, the reality I thought I was living in was not matching the life that I was living. And there was something just completely incompatible between who I felt I was and what my life was. And of course, over time, as hopelessness just becomes that kind of constant companion and that feeling of nothing being right, nothing being worth it, is that is just a frequent part of your life and that becomes basically your worldview and the lens through which you view everything, suicide then starts to make sense. Because it's not that you want to die like you're so hyped to feel your last breath leave your body, but what else was there for me? That's what I was thinking. Why keep trying? You know, why do another 10 years of this? I'm going to die eventually anyway. Do I really want to wake up another day 
and face the same pain, the same disappointment, the same frustration at life not being what I want it to be and just feeling this constant sense of emptiness, of dissatisfaction, of things not quite fitting correctly. And so that's when suicide, I think for, I imagine a lot of people, becomes the the greatest promise because maybe this finally would bring me happiness. Maybe this would bring me satisfaction. To stop existing would perhaps be better than existing miserably. And so all of that, again, you can hear in the way that I'm describing it and the way that I am um, reliving my thinking of that is that all, everything about my life was focused on me. You know, everything was so hopeless and I lived in a constant state of hopelessness because of what I was putting my hope in. And so that as I am examining myself, as I, as I examined myself over the last years, this is what I've seen is again, my more specific issues are that I feared and worshiped people. I had an overwhelming and controlling need for control and I live in a constant state of hopelessness. Now, again, those aren't diagnoses that I'm giving myself. Those are roots. Those are desires that I've been able to identify in my life. Now, you may be remembering last episode, I said, hey, everything basically boils down to one thing. And you might be sitting there saying, hey, whoa, whoa, flag on the play here, because you're saying that these were your issues. Because you may remember last week, I said that ultimately everything about us, our problems, is usually going to boil down to our own pride. And I want to say that, yes, while my hopelessness, my uh, fear of man, and my need for control are specific ways that I see my pride played out, I can still trace all of it to my pride. And I constantly, even today, even when I'm struggling in sin, I am saying, where is my pride flaring up right now? How am I seeing my pride play out in me? So as I draw to the end of this, I want to show you how, even as we are looking at things biblically, we can still get to the very core root of the majority of the suffering we all experience. And that is going to be our own pride. So let's go back to my social problems. Why was I controlled by people? Because I needed to be seen a certain way. I could only be happy if I was viewed in a certain way, if I felt a certain way, if I matched a certain standard that I decided I need to meet. So my big concern wasn't being handsome, so that wasn't a huge deal to me. But being smart was a very big deal to me. And so I needed people to see me as smart. And if they didn't, then they were threatening my pride because my pride demanded that people see me as smart or funny or comforting or you know whatever it is that I was trying, whatever identity I was trying to build myself into, I needed to be seen that way because if I was not, then I was not happy. And then likewise with that, I was crippled by a fear of failing. Why? Because that would mean that I was not perfect. That no matter how much I thought of myself, even though I said I thought so little of myself, why did I think so little of myself? Because I kept failing to live up to the standards I had set for myself. And so I would live and be crippled by a fear of failure. And so I wouldn't even try things or I wouldn't put much effort in or I would have constant excuses for why I couldn't do this or that. Even if something turned out well, I would have all these excuses to pad myself with and protect myself with because my pride was so terrified of not being seen as perfect. 
And I was afraid of basically failing myself and, and me not meeting up to these standards. Again, that's all my pride. I needed to be seen as this perfect thing. I needed to be a certain person. And when I wasn't, I hated myself for it. I despised myself for it. Because I was so prideful, I thought so little of myself because of my pride. Uh, next, my fear for control. This is a super easy one for pride. But basically, I knew best. I knew what the situation needed. I knew how the situation needed to play out. I knew what my relationships needed to look like. Whatever it was, I knew what was best. And so things needed to be my way. If I felt like the you know, eating something would make me happy, then I was going to eat it. If buying something was going to make me happy, I was not going to tell myself no, because the worst thing I could do is not do exactly what I felt I needed to do. So I would follow my heart in the Disney princess way because I deserved to do it because I knew what was needed in the moment. And obviously when I would lose control, then I would respond in anger or depression because Things weren't going how they needed to, right? The guy in traffic, my kids, my wife, my friends, my mom, if they were not behaving, thinking, saying things that I thought they needed to, if my school wasn't going the way I needed or my job or my finances or the car wasn't working, whatever, whatever was threatening to take control away from me, I would get angry or depressed because I was not being served in the way that I demanded to be served. And then lastly, with my hopelessness, what that would ultimately boil down to is that I needed happiness and I needed satisfaction in the ways that I dictated. And whenever these things that promised me happiness and promised me satisfaction would fail me, I would feel hopeless because I put my hope in them. When we put our hope in a thing and that thing fails, what do we have? We have nothing. We have no hope. Because that's ultimately what depression boils down to, is that we've pl we place our trust in something, in maybe one specific thing like a person, maybe in our life going a certain way, or in us feeling a certain way in order to feel satisfied. And when those things don't meet our expectations, or they just don't happen at all, then we have nothing else to hope in. And so when there's nothing that we can rely on, when there's nothing that we can trust in, when everything proves itself to be untrustworthy, what else is there except to live in depression, to have thoughts of suicide, to say, there's no point in any of this. Why even continue? And so, you know, as you listen to all that, maybe it's a little obvious. I ultimately lived for myself, but we can't pick on me too much. You do the same thing. All of us do it. We all, at our core, at who we are, as human beings, we live for ourselves. We worship ourselves. Everything we do is with the express aim and purpose of serving ourselves. Without the power of God in our lives, that is all we have. And so, you know, if, you, if you've gotten to the end of this episode, you've heard me talk about all the stuff that I thought and did and experienced. There's a wide variety of symptoms. There's a lot to it. But those are all just fruits. Those are all manifestations of something that was deeper down in me. Just like Christ said, it's what's inside of us that produces what comes out of us. So what was coming out of me was anger, horrible relationships, suicidal thoughts, 
all that stuff was coming from things that were deep inside of it producing it. And it really, as I hope I've shown, it boiled down to one root issue, and that is that I was going to find joy and satisfaction my way. Everything needed to be exactly how Ray Burns demanded it has to be. My happiness was my primary worship. Everything I did was to serve my happiness. I would sacrifice everything. I would burn everything in my life to the ground if it meant that I could be happy because that was all that I cared about. God was there, but he was very secondary to all of this at this time. And I couldn't see any of it because my identity was wrapped up in all of this. I was a person with dysthymia. I was a person with severe depression. I am borderline personality disorder. I am avoidant personality disorder. All these things defined who I was. And so I couldn't take an objective look on why I was doing these things. It didn't matter. It's who I was. The best I could do was try to live my life in spite of those things. Try to maybe learn some better behaviors, maybe try to find happiness in spite of those things, or maybe actually overcome everything and actually find that happiness that I had spent my entire life failing to find. And so even after salvation, that was my heart. That was my life because that is the world and culture that we live in. Even Christians, even Christian culture is so wrapped up in follow your heart, do what makes you happy. Your happiness is all that matters. You need to just do, do what you feel called to do and things like that. And all of it is so focused on us because our identity is defined by us. So every problem that we face is ultimately us chasing our own happiness and satisfaction in what we, in our pride, are defining and dictating. But for me, when Christ became my identity, when he became my focus, when he was my satisfaction, then not only did I start loving Jesus more, but I started looking at all those things that I had trusted in, all those things I thought I needed, all those things I did in search of happiness. And I started seeing why I did it. And I could do it because I had gotten basically distance. I could look back at that life I lived and I saw how much pride was involved in everything I did. So all the suffering I put my mom through, my wife, my friends, pastors, people I had relationships with, all of that, all that suffering, all that pain that I experienced, that they experienced because of me, all of it was because I was feeding my pride. And that was all that mattered to me. And without Jesus Christ, I would still be living that life. I would still be causing suffering. Maybe I could have learned some better behaviors. Maybe some medicine could have helped me feel a little better. But that core pride would still be there, corrupting absolutely everything I did. So to wrap this up, this is what it looks like to view our problems with a biblical worldview. This is everything I've talked about, all the all the hard things I've said about myself. That This is the journey that I went through. I had to be very honest and deal with some very painful realities on who I truly am, what I truly desired, and why I was doing the things I was doing. And as we do that, it's going to be painful. Because we have to really admit that we are not the hero in our story. We are the villain. We are responsible for all of the suffering in our lives. Our pursuit of our own needs, of, our, of serving our own pride, making ourselves our own God, is exactly why 
we suffer like we do? Why we have such a difficult time loving God the way that we want to? Because we can't. We're too busy loving ourselves. And when we when we do this, it removes a lot of those excuses. You know, I told you I had these these uh, disorders assigned to me. I had a label. I had something comforting I could hide behind. It explained why I experienced everything I did. Because as I said, the the borderline personality disorder, like that. I mean that that made sense. It helped me to understand. Oh, I do these things because. I have borderline personality disorder until I realized that borderline personality disorder is just a collection of symptoms that is assigned to people who have predictable behaviors. It's not an actual thing. It's just an explanation from a secular perspective to explain why people behave the way that they do. It's an interpretation and nothing more. But I had to let go of those excuses of saying, I can't help it. I'm a victim. It's how I am. And ultimately, it challenged my identity because I had become so wrapped up in what psychology said I was and who it said I was that for me to say that my anger was my decision, that I was experiencing depression because of my desires and what I was putting my hope in, to ultimately say that that I was responsible purely for all the suffering in my life was hard and I didn't want to do it. There was times I'll be honest. I I wanted to give up. I wanted to retreat and say, no, it can't be my fault. I can't be this bad. I, I would never do this to myself or people that I love, but I did because I'm a sinner and praise God. I'm saved by grace. But without the work of God in my life, that is who I am. That is who we all are. We are all horrible people. Some of us, maybe our pride manifests itself in more socially acceptable ways. But it doesn't matter because we still have sinful pride that is driving our actions. And this is why we need Jesus Christ to be center to everything we do. Not Jesus existing to serve us and to make us happy, but us living and existing purely for the glory of God. So I hope this was a useful case study. Um, I hope that the, the pain and the suffering and the heartache that has characterized my life is something that God is going to use to help you. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of these things. Obviously I'm putting it out there for the world to hear. Um, you know, I'm not ashamed of these things. I mean, I hate that I did these things, obviously who wouldn't, but you know, I've learned that God can use my failures for his glory. If God allowed me to have such a prideful and rebellious and idolatrous heart, then I know he's going to use it for his glory. And so I hope that this episode is just one way that God is able to use everything about my life to further your own understanding of him, your own understanding of yourself, um, and just to really help you grow closer to Jesus Christ and grow deeper in spiritual maturity. So I'm going to leave it off here. We've looked at so far, just to recap everything, uh, we've looked at 
uh, you know, why psych psychology is very secular, both in its foundations and in its interpretations, and therefore why what it offers has to be secular. And why, as I've talked, we can't just shove Jesus into the solutions that psychology gives because it starts with a secular worldview. We've also talked about foundationally who we are as people, what we are made of, why we do the things we do. And from there, we have talked uh, last episode about how we can then interpret our behaviors and why we do certain things, um, understanding it from a foundational of a body, soul, humanity, as well as uh, you know the reality of who God is in the universe, uh, what sin is, our need for Jesus Christ, and things like that. And then in this episode, I hope that it has given uh, great clarity and taken it from just this kind of theory to something that you can actually see played out. And um, I hope you've seen it played out, not just in a gossip kind of way where you're just loving to hear how messed up somebody is, but instead to see how good our God is and how much he's worked in my life, how much he's worked in the lives of others to take us from these prideful, sinful, wicked people and to grow us and mature us and not to give up on us, but to keep working and keep growing us in sanctification because God is good and he is never content to just let us sit and wallow in our sin and misery. So thank you for listening. Thank you for your patience. Um, I will pre thank you for your understanding as you are talking, you know, people who know me are talking to me in the future. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not shy about this stuff. Feel free to ask questions. Even if you don't know me, shoot me an email for clarification. Uh, I am very open about this because I want, I want everything I do to be to God's glory. And I hope this is just another one. So next episode should close out our psychology series. And in that one, finally, finally, we get to talk about finding the better solution. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. If this ministry is a blessing to you, there are three ways that you can support it. You can pray for Ray and Onward in the Faith itself. You can share this episode with others, or you can help with various expenses by visiting patreon.com slash Onward in the Faith or following the link in the show notes. We hope this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith towards maturity in Christ.